0: I haven't met you before huge huge welcome my name's emma i'm part of the staff team here at kxc um, and it's a total joy to come and speak to you today i'm just going to pray before we get started holy spirit we welcome you afresh in this space lord would your presence come we thank you that you are the god of hope that you are with us and lord i just pray that you would take these words now and would you use them for your glory Amen. Amen. Well, as we've been saying, today marks the first Sunday of Advent. And in our our tradition, we don't actually talk that much about Advent. We normally associate it a lot more with chocolate calendars than we do anything else. But Advent's actually this moment in the church calendar where we choose to sit and we engage with longing. Like sitting in that place of tension, not just rushing to quick fixes or covering things up. But we're taking the time to hear again, like the longings of our heart, the aches, the groans of a world that's longing to be made new. You know, when you phrase it like that, it's easy to see why we go for the chocolate calendar sometimes. And and yet as Christians, we don't sit in longing with despair. We sit in longing with incredible hope. And the reason we can sit in longing with hope is because of the story that we're a part of. Anna Mason, a few weeks ago, she reminded us of this incredible story of God. It's the message that has the power to restore light where there's only been darkness, like to silence fear, to transform lives. It's the story of a God who just doesn't stand at a distance and throws a few helpful comments down from heaven. But he runs towards humanity, gets into the pain, into the hurt of where we're at. And he dies, he rises again, he conquers death. And this is the message that's been setting people free ever since. It's the gospel message that's been overcoming fear, tearing apart injustice, revolutionizing cities, and teaching the voiceless how to sing again. That this is what we're part of. And more than that, this is the story that everyone is invited into. And as I was just praying about today, um, I was just asking, like, Lord, what do you want me to speak on? I just felt, like God say to to name what we've seen grow amongst us as a congregation. Um, and it's this thing of hunger, this thing of hunger for God's presence. And so this talk is going to be revolving around this theme of hunger, the stuff that's stirring in our worship, this hunger for God's um, power to break out in our city. It's almost like some of us have woken up again to the power of the story that we have. You know, a hunger for God, it's always going to lead us outwards. There's this um, great st- saying that the Celts had um, back in the first century. And you can tell from this saying that they were a slightly dramatic bunch. Because basically what happened is when the darkness drew in, when the nighttime came and like the house was totally dark, before they lit that first lamp, what they would say, I love it, they speak out into the darkness and they say, I beg to differ. And then they light the candle and then oh, the whole light kind of takes over. I love it. Dramatic as ever. And um, but my sense is that as this hunger starts to grow with us as a church, there's going to be an invitation to start saying um, to the darkness, "I beg to differ," to start lighting lamps in this city again. You know And it is the call of the church throughout the ages to do just that, to stand in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of pain, in the midst of confusion, to so stand right in the heart of a city and say, "I beg to differ." not because we have it all together, not in our own strength, not through some incredible kind of polished events, but because our longing for God is greater than anything else. Like a hunger for God's presence is more than anything else, and so we're willing to step out. And if you're anything like me, like you want to see this stuff happen. I am all in, like hand me the matches, I am there. But then Monday morning arrives, you know, this is my confession, the Netflix Christmas films get you. You're watching them back to back, and you're kind of sitting there saying, "Like, how do I take this incredible theology of a God who's at work in our city? How do I take the hunger that's stirring within me, and how do I make it real? How do we do this? How do we live lives that respond to hunger? I love what Eugene Peterson says on this. He says, the only opportunity you will ever have to live by faith is in the circumstances you are provided in this very day this house you live in, the family you find yourself in, the job that you're in. You know, in other words, we hold this tension between, on the one hand, cultivating this hunger for the fullness of God's kingdom to break out, and then, on the other hand, understanding that that kingdom breaks out in the small, every decisions that we make. You know, it's so easy to get wrapped up in a big kind of renewed vision for the city, isn't it? And miss actually what the Spirit wants to do in our everyday lives. It isn't so much about uncovering clever strategies, but about learning to see and hear where the Spirit is leading each one of us and obediently following, even when it doesn't make sense or we can't see how it relates. So I just want to spend a bit of time tonight unpacking this kind of growing hunger that's stirring within us uh, looking at some of the barriers that actually stop us as well from engaging in this hunger. And we're going to be revolving this all around Acts chapter 9. It's a guy who knows how to follow God, even when it doesn't make sense. And this story is quite a famous one. Um, it's a story of Paul's conversion. And Paul, for those who don't know, he is a key figure in the early church, he plants loads of churches all around the place. Um, but this passage also has another key character in it who often doesn't get talked about. And he's called Ananias. And it's the guy. this is the guy I want to focus on today. And just as well, to name, there's going to be confusion that kicks in very soon. Saul and Paul, they're the same person. Uh, Acts chapter 9, he's called Saul. In Acts chapter 13, he changes his name. Saul becomes Paul. Hi, you know, fine for him. Highly confusing for us. Um, but yeah, Saul and Paul, same person. So we're joining the story. It will come up on the screen in Acts chapter 9. Um, And Just to give a bit of context, Saul, he's not a Christian yet. Actually, quite the opposite. We're told in verse 1 that he's breathing out murderous threats against the disciples, and he's traveling to Damascus with letters from the high priest um, to, to imprison, the power to imprison any disciples he comes across. And he's traveling to Damascus. He's on his way with his friends, with these letters. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears to him. Um, a flash of light comes from heaven. He falls to the ground. He's blinded. And all of a sudden, he realizes that this Jesus isn't just a heretical teacher. He's actually king of kings and lord of lords. So he's blinded. And he's basically led by his friends to a house in Damascus. And there he just waits for three days without food, without water, without water. And we're going to join uh, in verse 10. Okay, so Acts chapter 9, verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all he call on your name. This page turn didn't go well either in the morning service. Seamless. Okay. Um, But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This is the man, my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and show the people of Israel. Oh, sorry, and before the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up, he was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. You know, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. It's an incredible story, isn't it? And the ripple effects reach us here today. We're here because of Paul's conversion. But we're also here because of Ananias' obedience. His obedience to follow the whispers of God in everyday life. He was just a normal guy loving Jesus, getting on with life, and yet he'd managed to cultivate a life that meant when God asked him to do the seemingly impossible, he responded with yes. And my sense is that probably most of us here haven't had a direct vision from God. Like, I know I haven't had one yet. And yet following Jesus is learning to live this life of radical obedience. This is what it means to cultivate hunger in our life. And it will look different for each one of us. You know, for some of us, it will be stepping out in faith um, on a word that we've heard from God. For others of us, it will be sharing our faith um, every day, you know, to family members, to colleagues. For others of us, it will be choosing to lead with forgiveness, to stand up against an injustice that we see. Like, whatever it looks like for you, learning to light the candle in the midst of darkness will take courage. And my sense is that what God wants um, to meet us in today is some of the things that hold us back, that act as barriers to taking that stand. You know, the, thing that in our, uh, the things in our lives that act as barriers from striking that match. And so there's just two barriers that we see in Acts chapter 9, that we see Ananias overcome, that I want to draw out. And the first is this need for certainty, And the second is this tension that we see play out between Ananias' story and God's story. So firstly, Ananias has this ability to choose faith over certainty. Um, I love God's instructions to Ananias in verse 11. Like, he's told to go to a specific house uh, on a specific street. I knew I'd struggle to say specific. A specific house, specific street to a specific man. And yet that's pretty much all he's told. Incredible amount of detail, and yet he's actually not shown any of the bigger picture. And I love Ananias' response to God in this moment. In verse 13, he says, "'Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem.'" Basically, in other words, like, "'God, are you sure?' It's not like Paul's, you know, sitting on the fence about you. I just need to take him out for coffee, have a theological chat with him, and, you know, he'll just kind of give his life there and then. Like, actually, quite the opposite. He is breathing out murderous threats against the disciples, and you want me to go to him. Are you you sure, God? And this is where the rubber hits the road, right? Because God's response to Ananias, it doesn't give him certainty that he's going to be okay. Like, none of this makes any sense at this point in time. And yet Ananias' faith in God is higher than his need for certainty in his life. And that's the combination that enables the kingdom of God to break out. And for me, this is probably one of the strongest tensions that I feel in my life. Like, uncertainty for me is the enemy. Like, awful. I want to plan. I want to know things. And yet when certainty is the highest value in our life, stepping out in faith is pretty much impossible. Um, a few months ago, I was coming back from holiday. I was boarding a plane. I'd sat down in the chair, and all of a sudden, I just had this realization that the person in front of me, the person to the left of me, and the person behind me were sniffing. They had really heavy colds. And for me, like, this is my worst nightmare. I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm on a plane for hours. Um, So I'm basically hunched up at this point against the window. Um, I've put my armrest down to act as this, like, invisible barrier to all of the germs. I'm like, fingers crossed, that will do something. And then all of a sudden, this announcement comes out over the tannoys. The air hostess has got up, and she basically makes this announcement and says, ladies and gentlemen, huge apologies, but a man has arrived late to the gate. And therefore, we've missed our window to take off, and we're going to have to sit on the uh, the runway for a few hours. I'm livid, absolutely livid. I'm someone who arrives four hours early for a flight in order not to be the person who thinks you can get through security in ten minutes. It's impossible and I know by the smiling faces there's some of you who think that's possible. It is not. I am like a firm believer in arriving in plenty of time. So not only am I livid that some person thinks he can defy time um, and I'm, you know, held up our plane. I'm now stuck in a box on a runway for hours with germs just flying around the space with recycled air um, and so I'm basically, it sounds funny I'm actually getting myself really really worked up I'm getting more and more anxious I'm like come on come on I've got no control over this I'm stewing on it and then we take off all of this stuff going around in my head I'm like actually feeling quite anxious so I just grab a book that's in front of me just idly trying to distract myself I flick through the pages and my eyes fall to the bottom of the page and this is what I read The historian of Alcoholics Anonymous titled his work Not God because the most important hurdle for an addicted person is to acknowledge deep in their soul not being God. First of all, we had to quit playing God, concluded the founders of AA, and then allow God himself to play God in the addict's life, which involves daily, even moment-by-moment surrender. I don't know if you've ever had those moments, Where all of a sudden, like the thing that you've been wrestling with for years becomes really obvious. But for me in this paragraph, like just reading that on the plane, I knew that that truth needed to apply to me. I was sitting there, anxiety ridden, exhausted from things completely out of my control. And in that moment, I just felt the Holy Spirit say to me, just really gently, Emma, like the way out of uncertainty, it isn't to discover certainty. It's to learn to surrender. I had to give up this act of playing God and learn to surrender to Jesus. And don't worry, the irony is not lost on me that the first time I realized I wasn't in control was flying thousands of feet above the earth. Um, And yet, this is something that I knew I'd struggled with. Intellectually, I'd known for years that I wasn't in control of my life. I never said I thought I could do that. And yet, I knew deep down that this relentless quest for certainty suggested otherwise. And this um, kind of relentless quest, it it also affected my relationship with Jesus as well. I am hungry to see God move. I want to see him break out. I want to see the city changed. I believe that can happen. But I realized in that moment as I was sitting on that plane that I wanted to see God move in my terms. In a certain way when I wanted him to. I had a certain idea of how I thought God should do things. Yet the invitation when it comes to follow Jesus, it's to follow him. In order to quit playing God, though, in order to surrender to Jesus, we have to trust him. We have to know his love for us. Like for so many of us, and this was the case for a long time in my life, it's actually not the question of God's sovereignty that's up for grabs. It's that deeper, heartfelt question of like, do you really love me? And more than that, can I actually build my life upon that love? Can I lean upon that so much and let go of the reins of my life? And this route, it doesn't promise a pain-free journey. Like this side of eternity, pain, hurt, it will be part of the ride. But what I've discovered is as I've leant into this more and more, is that there is a deep well of joy available when you give up certainty and learn to surrender to Jesus. It's what we were made for. We weren't made to play God. And I don't know where you're at today, but I just wonder if there are some in the room, when I'm talking about hunger for God, lighting lamps in our city, you're like, that sounds great, but to be honest, I'm absolutely exhausted. And the picture I had was this snowball kind of rolling down a hill, and life seems to be going faster and faster. It's taking all of your energy just to keep up with this snowball. That feeling of just being overburdened, anxiety-ridden, fearful. And if that's you, I just think God wants to meet you today. That like just He met me on that plane, to come not as someone telling you off, but as a father who longs to look after his kids. We don't just, you know, let go of certainty and hope for the best. We take that need for certainty, and we place it firmly in the hands of Jesus. It's not something we try harder at. It's a work of the Spirit. So I'd really encourage you, if this is resonating at all, just to come up at the end for some prayer. You know, revival doesn't break out in communities and cities with people who try harder, who strive more. Revival breaks out when people discover how deeply loved they are. When we start to learn how to walk down this path of surrender, living lives of obedience to him, not trying to control, but being open to being led. You know, we start to live in the freedom of the good news that we proclaim. We find courage to light those lamps. When we let go of our need for certainty and lean into faith, we give God the freedom to use us however he wants to. I love reading some of the stories uh, in the Bible and testimonies from people down the ages who have actually learned how to do this. Um, and there's always this brilliant moment quite early on in the start of their story when they first hear God speak. Um, and these are men and women of high faith. Like they do incredible stuff. But in this early stage, um, when they realize that they're going to have to take a leap of faith, they're often just really confused. Um, and it gives me hope. Um, one of my favorite stories of this is um, it took place a few miles away from here, but it, in the 1850s. And it was a woman. She was just walking down the street. It was, it was dark. It was starting to rain, cobbled streets. And she's on her way to church. And it's in the 1850s, so the Industrial Revolution has kicked in. Unemployment's really high. Uh, alcohol addiction, uh, disease. It, she's walking down effectively what is a slum. And um, she, her heart is breaking for the people that she's seeing. She's just praying to God, like, God, would you do something? Like, there's so much pain here. Lord, would you move in a way um, that, you know, I know you can do? And God basically speaks to her in that moment. And he says, will you do something about it? Will you be my hands and my feet? And her response I find unbelievably encouraging. This is what she says. I felt greatly agitated and trembling with a sense of my utter weakness. I stood still for a moment. I looked up to heaven and I said, Lord, if you'll help me, I'll try. You know, that lady, um, that was Catherine Booth. And she points to that moment as being the significant moment in realizing what it means to follow after God. Like nothing dramatic happened that night. She just spoke to a few women that she met. But she points to that moment in her life being the moment she understood that learning to light a lamp in the midst of darkness was never something she'd feel prepared to do. It would always take faith. All she could do was acknowledge her weakness, step out and try, trusting that God would help her. You know, Catherine Booth, as many of you will know, she went on to found the Salvation Army along with William Booth, and they preached the gospel to thousands of people, and they brought social reform that genuinely changed the landscape of the 19th century. The Salvation Army, it lit thousands of lamps um, in cities across this country, across the world. It pushed back all kinds of darkness All because one woman chose faith over certainty, said yes to something she felt ill-equipped to do, but whose heartfelt hunger for God was greater than anything else. You know, the thing that God wants to do through your life is beyond what you could ask for or imagine, but it won't always look like what we're expecting it to. It will lead us to places we would never have thought, and it will take us down paths that people will question. You know, the way to light lamps in the city is not to cover up our weakness, but to acknowledge that this is something we can't do in our own strength and instead say with all humility, Lord, if you'll help me, I'll try. We step out, we take that leap of faith. So if you're here today and you feel at the end of yourself, if you're feeling weak, this is my encouragement to you. God shows up again and again in moments of weakness and does the most extraordinary things. So firstly, we choose faith over certainty. And secondly, um, as we head back to Acts 9, Ananias, he's prepared for his story to be part of God's story. Um, Ananias is obviously a lot more high-functioning than I would be in this passage. Um, Not only is he being asked to do something that doesn't make any sense at all, he's being asked to extend this love to his enemy. You know, this guy was about to imprison him. And even more than that, he's actually being asked to commission his enemy to be God's chosen instrument. Like, in all honesty, my response would be like, what about me, God? Like, I am happy to be your chosen instrument to the Gentiles, to go before kings. You know, we've got a direct line of communication now. Just give me the download. I will go for it. And yet Ananias gets something, right, we so often miss. Like, our lives aren't a chance to prove our significance. They are a response to the incredible love of God. And we all want to feel significant, right? I know I do. Um, And that isn't wrong in and of itself. But the tragedy is when those who know and love Jesus live lives that try to obtain something that we already have. One of my favorite verses is found in Romans 8, and Paul writes this. He says, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. If you are in Christ, led by the Spirit, then you have already received the Spirit of Sonship. And Ananias gets this. You know He understood that the role he played, the titles he received, they didn't determine his significance. His Sonship was already confirmed. And it's a life lived in this kind of freedom that turns the world upside down. Like when we're content for our story to be part of God's bigger story. Um, At the start of the year, my my granny passed away and she she was very old. She was in her mid-90s and we're a really small family. So when it came to the funeral, I was expecting it to be just a few people, be like our family, some close friends, um, a handful of people. But as I walked into that church that day, like I looked up and just in front of me, there was hundreds of people there And I was just like, who on earth are you all? I don't recognize any of you. And we basically sat at the front, and the whole way through the service, I was just kind of like sneaking looks behind me, just like, who who are you? Um, And afterwards, we went out. We had some food. And these people kept on coming up to me. And basically, they all had the same story to share. I remember one woman. um, She must have been in her mid-60s. She came up to me. She grasped both of my hands. She looked me in the eyes. And she just said, like, you won't know who I am. But your granny prayed for my mum for 20 years every day until she became a Christian. And after that, our whole family, one by one, gave our lives to the Lord. And that was just one of like, many stories that I heard that day of people I've never met. Um, but my granny had like, just decided to pray. She'd prayed for decades. She'd made the decision a long time ago to give up some part of her morning to be part of a bigger story. You know, just feeble, faltering prayers, but she believed that they could do the impossible. And, you know, she never got to see the impact, really, of uh, those that the prayers had. But she had lit a lamp in so many families' lives because she decided to choose to be part of a bigger story. You know, we might never see the impact that our daily obedience has. But when we allow our stories to be part of God's story, kingdom life breaks out. Um, I don't know if anyone knows a guy called Robert Bruce, but he was a missionary in Iran in the 19th century. And he really got something of this. He wrote a letter back to his family in Scotland, and he was telling them about what was happening. He basically, God spoke to him, he said, Go to Iran. So he just went. And uh, it was in the midst of a cholera epidemic, there was a famine. Um, And so he basically just set up a medical station, cared for people, and tried to tell people as much as possible about Jesus. But he was seeing nothing happening, he saw no fruit. But he decided that God had spoken, so he was going to faithfully persist. And this is what he writes to his family. I am not reaping the harvest. I scarcely claim to be sowing the seeds. I am hardly plowing the soil, but I am gathering out the stones. That too is missionary work. Let it be supported by loving sympathy and fervent prayer. Um, The person um, who told us about Robert Bruce, he was actually um, an Iranian Christian. um, I met him last year. And he'd come to the UK to tell about some of the stories that are happening in Iran at the moment. Incredible stories of revival, uh, kingdom life breaking out all over the place. And he told this story about Robert Bruce with like tears in his eyes. Because whilst Robert Bruce didn't get to see uh, any of the fruit of his work, the stones that he cleared allowed others to plant seeds. And generations later, like the fruit is incredible. More people have become Christians in Iran in the last 20 years than in the past 1,300 years put together. All because one man was content to gather stones, trusting that God knew what he was doing. You know, how do people like Robert Bruce keep going when the fruit isn't obvious? How does Ananias commission his enemy to be God's chosen instrument? It's because their hunger for God is greater than anything else. You know, they know that it's only ever intimacy with Jesus, following so closely after him that brings fullness of life. And I just wonder if there are some people here today who feel like all you're doing at the moment is clearing out stones. Like God spoke to you a while back. He gave you a heart for something, an idea, but you're not seeing the fruit of it yet. There's no fruit in sight. And I just want to say to you today, I felt this quite strongly when I was preparing, but um, if God has spoken to you, stand your ground Stand your ground. Keep going. Don't give up. The God who's called you is faithful and he knows what he's doing. You know, if that's you, why not this week as Advent starts, why don't you just carve out some time to take that longing again to Jesus? Open up that conversation, you know, go for a walk, find a comfy chair, whatever it looks like for you. Create space this week to hear God's courage over you afresh. You know, in a culture that's obsessed um, with individual stories, this is often quite hard to get our heads wrapped around. But what happens if, like, the most countercultural thing we could do in our generation, like, the most stunning witness to the gospel was to clear out some of the stones in order that the next generation could bear extraordinary fruit, like, to choose to be part of a bigger story? And don't get me wrong, I am praying for fruit in my lifetime. I want to see the breakthroughs. I want to see that fruit. But what God wants to do in the world is bigger than just my story. And so whilst I'm collecting fruit in certain areas, like I want to lead a life that paves a way for God to establish his kingdom in ways that I will never get to see. And I don't know what that might look like for you. Um, just really practically, it might be committing to pray each day for the long haul, for decades, for an injustice that at the moment seems so big, but um, praying for it in order that the next generation might be rid of it. Or maybe praying for a friend, as my granny did, for years and years, faithfully choosing to pray. For others of us, it might be being radically generous behind the scenes when no one else is going to see. For others, it's caring and tending to those who could never thank us. Like, it's costly. But kingdom life that God, but the kingdom life that God can bring through one heart that's wholly surrendered is beyond what we could ever ask for or imagine. Um, John Wesley, he was a a revivalist in the 18th century, and he was a guy who totally got this. He turned the nation upside down, but he knew that his story was part of a bigger story. And one commentator on his life wrote this about him. Wesley's greatest achievement was not that he sang his own song, but that he rediscovered God's song and sang it afresh over a newly emerging landscape. Like That is the heart of renewal, the soundtrack of revival. And my sense is that that's what we're being called to do again, afresh in our generation. Not to try and sing our own song as loud as possible, to to sing over the drilling, Um, but together, as we long for God's presence, right? the, The thing that we're called to do is to sing with one voice over our city the salvation song of God, that there is hope in the midst of longing. You know, all of this, lighting lamps, living a life of obedience, isn't something that we try to muster up and and do in our own strength. It's something that we develop as we long after Jesus, as we spend time in his presence.